midst of a study on Isaiah, but Isaiah is so long, as I've been saying to you, Isaiah is so long, I didn't want to just go chapter by chapter by chapter from now on forevermore, world without end, amen. Uh, so, so we're taking a break. We got to Isaiah 23, and uh, we're taking a break. I'm looking at prophets who are contemporaneous with Isaiah. Two weeks ago, we looked at Hosea. Last week, we looked at Amos, and today, Micah. So, in fact, Micah actually quotes a section from Isaiah in chapter 4. So, uh, we'll have that uh, come up as we go. So, Micah, I've given here a kind of summary of the book. It's a quotation, as you know, from Micah itself. What does the Lord require of thee but to walk, uh, to do justly, to walk, uh, sorry, to uh, love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? So some, somewhat of a, a summary there. There's a lot more to be said about it, though. The date of the book is sometime in the period between 742 and 686 B.C., um, to be precise. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, the summary of the book, here is where I really want to, to emphasize this portion um, the book begins and ends with the emphasis on the incomparability of God. There is nothing one can compare God to. There are things that we can compare to God, but there's nothing you can compare to God, God to. Are you with me here? So, uh, I love and God loves. My love may be like his, but his is not like mine. Does this make sense to you? He's incomparable. There's nothing like him. Uh, which is fascinating. It just dawned on me this morning. Too soon old, too late, smart. To look, look over in chapter 7. Um, in chapter 7, the, the, the end of the book, the very last portion of the book, verse 18, who is a God like you? That's the meaning of the name Micah. Me in Hebrew, Hebrew is interesting. Me means who, who means he, and he means she in Hebrew. <laughs> so here, me means who, W-H-O, H-U, who means he, H-I, and he means she in Hebrew. And, and by the way, she or she means who. Fascinating in that regard. But the, so me means who. It's a question word, who. Ka is a word in Hebrew that means like, who is like. And a full pronunciation of Micah's name is Mikayahu, who is like the Lord. Or Mikael, who is like God. Are you with me here? So... Uh, from beginning to end, we're talking about the incomparability of the Lord. And his incomparability is primarily being revealed in light of the nations, as we shall see. But look at verse two, chapter 1, verse 2. The addressees of the book are not Israel and Judah. The addressees of the book are the nations. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And at the end of the book, we return to exhortation to the nations. In the middle is exhortation primarily to Judah, to the southern kingdom. So this is where we're going. So the Lord's coming will destroy land and temple. So, so the book of Micah is, is anticipating the destruction. A century later, um, 686 is the latest date we gave for possibly for Micah. In 586, the temple will be destroyed and the land will be destroyed and largely depopulated. Uh, Old Testament scholars, Old Testament historians have debated this for years, but they're coming back to the notion that largely Judah was depopulated in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and, and uh, the temple in 586 B.C. Uh, so that when Nehemiah, well, when um, 
Shesh Bazar. I, I know Shesh Bazar is somebody you've been thinking about quite a bit lately, but he he was the he's a, a man of the house of David who leads the first return from captivity. Uh, he's mentioned in the book of um, Haggai. When uh, he comes back, they settle in their old cities. Nobody's living there. Does this make sense to you? So uh, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you have a a um, census of the people who return, and these people came from this village, These this number came back, and from this village, a number, this number came back. You have that twice in Ezra and in Nehemiah, uh, at the end of Nehemiah. So the, uh, so the land is going to be destroyed, and the temple is going to be destroyed. But ultimately, the incomparable Yahweh's coming will bring Israel surprising salvation. In fact, one portion of this book is focused on the shocking way God's going to bring deliverance to Israel. It's just, it's almost beyond belief. And that will mean Israel will come back as a blessed and royal people over all the earth. What's interesting is in the judgment that God brings on Judah and the northern kingdom Israel, the people are taken into captivity and they're scattered among the nations. Then in the day of salvation, they're brought back to the land and then scattered among the nations again. And we'll see that at the end of the book of Micah. This almost sounds like the end times too. That's what we're talking about. He's, it's kind of what we've been saying off, off and on in the last months, what God has done in the past as a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. So uh, as... Israel, the northern kingdom, was, was taken into Assyrian captivity uh, in 722 B.C. The, the southern kingdom, Judah, is taken into captivity in 586 B.C. There were two other captivity exiles that occurred just before that, but the big one was in 586. But then Judah comes back, but there's not a restoration of the northern tribes particularly ever. And judgment's coming yet again. Um, I struggled for years with Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Daniel 11. Daniel 11 is a strange passage. It it seems to tell the story of battles between the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire in the the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C. And it seems that Antiochus IV Epiphany, I know these names are just household names for you, so I'm sorry to do this to you, but it seems that Antiochus IV Epiphanes is the character who is the little horn in Daniel 11, but the little horn doesn't die the way Antiochus IV does. And I struggled. I, I, it's a prophecy of the, of, the, of, the, of the Antichrist. No, it's a prophecy of the Antichrist. Finally, from Moses I have learned that what God has done in the past is a model and promise of what he will do in the future. So I need to know the patterns of history so that I see how God's going to act in the future. And as those things start to come to pass, they don't shock me. I'm ready for them. I, I'm, I begin to understand what God is doing. Does this make sense to you? So Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes is probably the little horn, at least initially, in Daniel 11. But then there's a Titus who destroys the temple in 70 AD Um, and there is a Hitler yes 1492 is important in in world history why that's that yes not the who no no the Jews the Jews were driven out of Spain in 1492 uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, who financed Columbus's uh, expedition to the New World, also drove the Jews out of Spain in 1492, and that's where you get uh, Eastern European Juda- Judaism. So, so you get all these kinds of things that are happening, patterns that are being repeated over history. And so in Micah, we're going to be talking primarily about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 7, 586 B.C., But Jerusalem has been taken and conquered over and over and over through the centuries. Am I making sense to you? So we're seeing patterns that are going to be repeated even again.
So what we're seeing here is both past and our future. So uh, let's look at the structure of the book. You have the title and introduction in chapter 1, 2 to 5. Uh, in two, we started looking at 2 to 5, but you have a kind of summary of the judgment that's coming, both for Israel, but especially in 1, 2, for the nations of the earth. You see, if God's going to judge Judah this way, what's he going to do to the sin, sinful nations of the world? Samaria is the northern kingdom. Um, Samaria, the hill of Shemer, uh, was just a barren or an empty mountain in uh, north of Jerusalem, several miles, uh, 30 miles or something like that. And uh, Omri, the father of Ahab, bought the hill of Shemer and built a city there, and that's the, the city of Samaria, and that became the name for the whole northern kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, so the northern kingdom is sometimes called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, and sometimes called Samaria. So, um, so chapter one, two to uh, one to five is the introduction and a kind of summary for the book. Judgment is coming. The judgment that's coming, though, don't get too excited, you Gentiles. The judgment that's coming from Judah is going to fall on you too. And so what Peter says, it's time for, how, for judgment to begin with the household of God. In Peter, he's talking about the persecution of the church. Uh, so God judges the household of God, worthy of the kingdom, by subjecting us to, to persecution. Are you with me here? Uh, so in Acts chapter 5, I think it's Peter and John are taken before the Sanhedrin and they are warned not to preach in Jesus' name anymore and they're beaten. And as they leave, at the end of the chapter, as they leave the Sanhedrin, they rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the sake of the name. Are you with me here? Uh, I have to have an entirely different view of what life is like as a child of God. When I come to the Bible, I, I, I... I'm confronted with realities that are not comfortable for me as an American, but they have to become what we anticipate as our lot in life. 2 Timothy 3.16, most of you know, uh, all, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, but 2 Timothy 3.12 <coughs> comes before verse 16, amen, so... So for our visitors, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things most people don't know. And one of the things I know is that verse 12 comes before verse 16. Amen? You can see the wisdom of that, no doubt. But in 2 Timothy 3.12, that's what? Splendid, splendid. Yes, of course. What else could it be? But, but uh, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, yes, and everyone who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So what we should expect is not easy times and comfort and joy and pleasantly pleasant life. What we should expect is hardship, because that's how God stiffens um, us for our service. Does this make sense? It's coming. And most of us have gone through some already, not persecution necessarily, but some suffering. How do you know that the headache you may have is, is not caused by Satan or one of his servants? Do, do you follow this? We, we think too naturalistically. We must begin to think in terms of a world in which God really does uh, rule. Are you with me? And since I am a servant of God behind enemy lines during war, out of uniform, I am by definition a spy. And all of the enemies of God have, have a mandate to attack and to destroy. Are you, are you with me here? Yeah, so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, you have this introduction. Then I have uh, the first major part that takes us through chapter 5. 
uh, the summary I have is Yahweh warns the nations of talionic justice. Uh, that's the easiest, quickest way I can say it. The word talionic justice means simply an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So judgment that's coming that reflects the situation, reflects the nature of the sin committed. Uh, so uh, Yahweh warns the nation of talionic justice against his people and all the nations, but also he warns them of redeeming Israel. Remember, who's the book addressed to? All the nations. So if God's going to judge Israel, don't get too excited, you Gentiles. Because if he starts with his own household, he's going to get you too. And then the second major part, which takes us to the end of the book, incomparable Yahweh's covenant lawsuit will finally move Israel to await his deliverance bringing the nations into abject submission to himself. So we'll, this is what we're going to look at as we go through. So let's move on. Uh, one, two to five we've already talked about. Um, let me just look at verse four and five with you. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split like wax before fire, like water poured down a steep place. This is for the rebellion of Jacob. And for the sons, and this he says to the nations, this is for the sin of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? He has now summarily rejected the whole worship system of the two nations. And if he's rejected their worship system, what does that mean for the nations? We move on. Now, uh, first major section, 1, 6 to 5, 15, um, and the first segment of that goes through 3, 12. Uh, I want to move on to um, uh, discussion, discussion of that section now. Uh, we've already talked about talionic justice. Some biblical examples are Adam and Eve who sin by eating, so the punishment is have a, to have a hard time getting food. Yes, Jacob, who sins by cheating a father and, and brother, he's disciplined by being cheated by a father and sisters. You will say they're not his sisters. Yes, but Hebrew doesn't have a word for cousin. So any woman of your generation in your extended family is your sister. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, So this is... This is what talionic justice is. We'll watch it at work in chapter 1 there. We'll, we'll see Israel's sin 2-1. Woe to those who scheme iniquity. So what is their punishment? 2-3, God will plot disaster. So everybody's scheming here. <laughs> yes? People of God are scheming and God is scheming. Wonder whose scheme is going to work. <laughs> Second, two two, they they seize other people's inheritance. So, there will be no inheritance in the land for Israel. They deny disaster. Two six, uh, for I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will. I've said one six. Two six is what I'm looking for. Uh, do not speak. Do not speak out. In the context, this is probably a warning from the people of Judah to the prophets not to preach. Do you remember this in Amos? We looked at this last week briefly. Um, don't preach. So they speak out. But if they do not speak out, if you don't let the prophets speak concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. So they deny the disaster, therefore to tend they'll be overtaken by disaster. In 3, 1 to 3, they refuse the cries of the poor who are being oppressed. So their their own cries are unheard. Let me talk about the poor here. The issue here is not so much an economic issue as it is a theocratic issue. The idea is 
everyone in Israel has land given to them by God. Does this make sense to you? And since they have land given to them by God, if I loan you money and charge you interest, which is prohibited under the law of Moses, but you must remember there is no police agency in Israel to... to um, I can't even think of the term I need at this point. Um, to enforce, thank you, to enforce the law. So, so if you, yes, we, a little help. <laughs> um, so there's no police agency. So the only person to do this is God. And we've said in the past, God is so merciful that he delays judgment as long as he can do it without becoming unjust himself. But that means people suffer an awful lot in a sinful world. Um, are you aware? I'm gonna. You know, I almost need to turn this off for now. But do, are you aware that nothing teaches in the Bible? Nothing teaches giving money to the church. What what it does teach is there are three objectives to whom you are to give your money. Uh, one is to missionaries. Um, Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter four, how the how the the people in Philipp, uh, in what did I say Philippians four, mm-hmm. yeah, um, how they have supported him on many occasions and they've done well and they share in his reward and so on. So it's it, it's appropriate to give money to those who are expanding the boundaries of the gospel. Secondly, you give to the poor with special reference to the poor of the family of God. So. Uh, my my own personal verse in the Bible, Galatians chapter 6, do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. <laughs> so glad that verse is there. <laughs> do, good to, do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. So I have a responsibility for believers everywhere in the world, not just in my own assembly, everywhere in the world, but if I have resources left over, I may, do, I, I may and should do good to those who are in need in other walks of life as well. And then the third objective is to those who, who, who meet our needs spiritually, who feed us spiritually. Yes, sir? I was going to say, in a sense, as, as money is to be given to missionaries Well, except nothing is ever said about giving money to the assembly at all. It, 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 there's not a word about it in the New Testament. Well, in the Old Testament, though, is it? Yes, but that's a tax. This to is a, the, uh, uh, to the Levites? That's yeah, a tax? that's a tax. Uh, when Samuel is talking to Israel about a king that they want, he says... He's going to charge you tithes. And the tithe, God is the king. The high priesthood is the, the high priest is the prime minister. The, the priests are the uh, ministers of the government. They are the judicial system. Um, and um, uh, so this is all for the support of the government. The, uh, the temple, the, tem- the tabernacle and temple are the palace of the, of the king. Um, there, there, there are lots and lots of connections here that make it clear we're talking about a, a kingdom. I don't, really don't want to get into this. I've got other fish I need to fry today. But my point is to say, um, what is my point? Oh, my point, my point is to say, when, when, you, when you have poor people in Israel, the wider family is intended to stand, step in and help so it's the family who will protect against um, somebody charging interest in a loan. But if the family won't do it because they're involved in giving loans at interest, so if I fight you for charging interest to one of our family members, i got to explain why I'm charging interest to somebody else. Does this make sense to you? So the, the poor are the, are, who, who are being oppressed are not people who simply are without resources, they are people who have divine right to land. You're taking that land. You're taking that home from them. Does this make sense to you? Um, it does seem like the book of Ruth uh, mm-hmm. um, just lays that all out oh, yeah. for 
That's right. Yeah, Ruth is a is a major contribution in that area. Um, then there is there is uh, there are deceiving prophets in three five. So in three six, the prophets are deceived. Here, all this Italianic justice over and over again. What is God going to do? What does God do in judgment? Um, let me have you turn to Second Thessalonians one. Uh, there's an interesting passage there that will help clarify some of this. Um, what does judgment look like for the household of God? If, if that's really what 2 Timothy 3.12 is talking about, what does judgment look like for the household of God? I'm in uh, 2 Thessalonians 1. I haven't told you the verse yet, but let's start at verse uh, 3. First, Second Thessalonians one three, um, it's page three hundred and twenty four. If you have the right Bible, uh, yeah. Well, you don't have the right Bible, so uh, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which um, indeed you are suffering. Are you with me here? When God's people suffer, it's because of God's plan, it's because of their commitment to God, and the enemies of God are going to afflict them. And this is a plain indication of God's approval in our lives. But verse 6 continues. For after all, it is only just for God to repay uh, with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Uh, We could read on there. But the point is that, folks, we've got a false conception of what suffering means. Yeah. But when we're talking about the New Testament, we're talking about a different dispensation. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a different dispensation. We're being persecuted because of a choice to choose God. Mm Mm-hmm. We, we, or mm-hmm. God chose us, okay, yep. anointed us. Yep. Okay, so the world's reacting to us. Mm-hmm. What you're talking about in Micah mm-hmm. is they're choosing to reject God. That's true. It's a whole different kind of judgment. He's yes. judging them for a whole it different is, type of purpose. It's a, it's a judgment of wrath after a fashion, but it still starts with the household of God. Well, the wrath, it's a judgment. You're talking about the judgment of wrath in, in, in Micah. In Micah, yeah. Okay, but it's, it's not wrath yet, is it? Well, yeah, there are two kinds of wrath in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is, is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. That's present wrath. In Romans chapter 2, I've forgotten the verse. Romans chapter 2, it's around verse 5. Yeah, it is verse 5. But because of your, Romans 2, 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So there's present wrath and there's eschatological wrath. And Israel in Micah is experiencing present wrath. Well, in fact, that way they're similar. Yeah. They're storing up wrath. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the but but where, my where, my where larger Micah, where does where does Israel prior to what's going to happen in the future where does Israel experience wrath other in the in, in in their captivity yes but is that wrath that's oh yeah is that the it's present wrath All right. but I say again the more more important issue here is they're the household of God judgment starts with them. It, 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 great privilege entails great responsibility. You know what I'm thinking? I'm, thinking, I'm sitting here thinking Paul says the law. When he teaches us law, so we're in the dispensation of grace. 
The law does nothing but make you suffer. The law does nothing but makes you, it, it, it makes the whole life miserable. This is why you're given grace. So, be, but back in his, this day in Micah, okay, back, back in, these, in this day, okay, they're, they're breaking God's law. Yeah. Okay. And they're trying to deal. They're trying to maintain a theological system on the basis of law. No, they're not. They're not. They don't care about law of God. They've rejected it. But God cares. God, oh, God cares God profoundly. God yeah. On the basis of see, law. see, we've got a, a basic um, di- divergence in the concept of law. Law, if if we would keep it would actually make our lives better. Oh, yeah. But we can't keep it because we have indwelling sin. Same problem back here. Yeah. But, but, the, but the, the, the point is that if Israel would keep it, then they would enjoy the blessing of God, but they can't. But now they're not even trying. They've rejected it, as the text says. Um, so let me go on here. How do I know when judgment is coming to me for some sin that I've committed, it's typically going to be in the form of the sin that you, you have committed. It's this talionic justice. Again, uh, in 6, 9 to 12, they cheat when they sell. So they have one set of weights for selling and one set of weights for buying. <laughs> so what he will do in judgment is bring hunger and famine on them. Um, in chapter 6.16, they're practicing ruinous policies. So they will experience ruin among the nations. Are you, are you with me here? This is kind of a quick run-through of this judgment section, but it's an important section, and it sets up an important concept that God begins judgment with his own household. For you and me, because we cannot undergo wrath, that... That judgment is the wrath of man, the wrath of Satan against us. But that indica- that's an indication, as we saw in 2 Thessalonians 1, that we're actually approved by God. Yeah. Yes? Yeah. So when the wicked succeed, when the wicked are prosperous, uh, two, two thoughts ought to come to your mind. First is, but at what cost? It's, it's like the average teenager who wants all the best things right now. Don't want to have to wait. Don't want to have to save. Don't want to have to work hard to get them. Yes? But at what cost? The other thought that ought to come is, when I see the wicked prospering, the other thought that ought to come is to remember that this is all the heaven they're ever going to know. And I can't begrudge them a little pleasure, a little comfort, a little beauty. When our destiny is everlasting. Are you with me here? So Judah has to be confronted, as well as the nations have to be confronted, with the fact that their choices, what they've decided they're going to do, the most reasonable thing to do for all humanity is to live on the basis of what your eyes can see. It's never to live in light of a future that seems right now unattainable. Yes? Take the teenager. But I want that car now. I don't want to wait. Yes? We'll pay you, want you to pay for the insurance, make the park, car pay, the park payments, and the, buy the gas. Yes. Uh, so, so Judah is having to be confronted with this. You're living on the basis of what your eyes can see, and what your eyes see is that the Canaanites pray to Baal, and they get rain on their fields. We pray to Yahweh, and we don't get any rain on our fields because Baal doesn't care about your morality. Baal only wants you to do the, do the ritual right. I do the ritual right for Yahweh. Baal is satisfied. What does the Lord want? They'll ask later, as you know, in this book. Yes? What does the Lord want? 
I do the ritual, I bring the sacrifices, we sing the songs, we keep the festivals. What does the Lord want? How could he want more than this? Yes? Because yeah. they're, they're living their lives on basis of what they can see, not on the basis of a future which seems unattainable at the present. Uh, let me go to, here. Jen was getting ready to ask. I, I know her nonverbal communication very, very well. Now go ahead. <laughs> Where in scripture does God say, uh, I, I detest your sacrifices? Oh, well, in a variety of places. Isaiah 1 is, is one of them. Mm-hmm. Jeremiah has passages like that. 59 too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. May I just. Here, she had her hand up just a minute ago. Go ahead. Uh, the last part of verse 16. Yeah. After he's, he's confronted his own people and then everybody else. And you will bear the reproach of my people. Yeah. I'm not sure. I believe everything in... I, I believe everything in the Bible. I just don't know what it all means. So I do, I do the best I can. Uh, so um, here is... Just a walk through of these chapters. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, I put you off. Yeah. It doesn't fit very well at all because they hardly ever obey and get blessing. <laughs> Let me take you to a to a psalm that will illustrate this. Uh, Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is, is usually called a historical psalm. I, that's true. It's a review of Israel's history. It's very much like Deuteronomy 32. Um, but uh, Psalm 78. Oh, my. Thank you. I just can't make my fingers work. Um, Psalm 78 is a, is a historical psalm. It's a long one, as you see, so we'll not go through all of it. But he gives an introduction to the psalm, and then uh, verse 5, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children. That, and this is kind of a summary of the psalm, by the way, this passage 5 through 8. Uh, that, the, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Then he starts into the history. Verse 9, the sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. So, um, what does God do? Verse 12. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt and the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. What obedience led God to do that? In Psalm 78? None. Go down to verse 12. Or 17, rather. Yet they still continued to sin against him and to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Uh, Then they spoke against God. They said, Can't God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out. What obedience led God to provide water for this rebellious people in the wilderness? None. Look at verse 21. Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath. By the way, when God blesses in Psalm 78, immediately Israel rebels. When God blesses in Psalm 78, immediately God rebel, uh, Israel rebels. So verse 21, a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger against also mounted against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Verse 23, yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna upon them. What? obedience of Israel led God to bless them? None. And you can go through this. Consistently, the, when you review the history of Israel in the, in the passages subsequent to Deuteronomy, God blesses because he blesses. 
He doesn't bless because they have obeyed. So when I come to the climax of the psalm, look at the very end of the psalm, verse 65. Then the Lord awoke, as, and, and this is Deuteronomy 32 in the book of Psalms. Read Deuteronomy 32 sometime with De- Psalm 78. You'll see they're basically the same thing. I bless you, you rebel. I bless you, you rebel. I bless you, you rebel. So now we're coming to somewhat the climactic blessing of God. Then the Lord awoke as if from sleep, like a warrior overcome by wine. He drove his adversaries backward. He, he put, them, uh, put on them an everlasting reproach. He also rejected the tents, uh, tent of Joseph, did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, and from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. The, I think the message of this psalm is, every time I've blessed you in the past, you've rebelled. Don't rebel against David. Um, but consistently... Um, by the way, what, bless, what obedience of Israel brought David as the climactic blessing at the time this psalm was written? None. So I don't find a record of obedience that brings blessing. What's promised is if they will obey, they will be blessed. Yeah. But they, uh, it's like the book of Judges. At a, after a while in teaching Judges, I've taught Judges for a long time now. <laughs> after a while in teaching Judges, I've quit saying there is, a, there is a stage of repentance in Judges. Do you know the cycle? Do you know about the cycle in Judges? Uh, it's uh, six parts or so. Uh, the people rebel, and so God turns them over to oppression, and they spend a pre- X number of years in oppression, then the people cry out to the Lord. And I, I titled that repentance at one point. They cry out to the Lord. He sends a deliverer. The emphasis is always on the deliverance. Then you have the statement, and they had rest for X number of years. Uh, I've, I've left out some step. I can't remember what it was. Um, but then the people rebel again. By the time you get to Judges 10, he says, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. I'm going to judge you. And the, and the people say, and here's, here's the most telling statement in the book of Judges. Do, do to us whatever is right in your eyes. If they had stopped at that point, I'd say, that's repentance. But they don't. Only deliver us this one time. And there really is, there is no repentance in the book of Judges. There, neither is there repentance under the godly kings because they wouldn't turn away so quickly after the godly king is gone. It's external. It's putting the lid on the boiling water to, <laughs> to hold the pressure in. And when the lid is removed, it boils over. Fred? For, for judges, yes. For, for the, what, what uh, Rick was talking about in terms of the history of the of the, of Israel, Judah, that it would be still a small area. It would be Judah primarily, but um, it, it I just don't find a history of obedience that leads to blessing. In Psalm one hundred and six, uh, three days mentions God parting the sea and Miriam's uh, rejoicing that the Lord had taken care of them, and then three days later, again they start grumbling yeah. and complaining. Um, and and, and gr- it, kept, it kept saying in Psalm 106 that they forgot. Yeah. They forgot. Yes. And grumbling is not what we did when we were teenagers. <laughs> grumbling in, in a covenant setting, in a royal setting in the ancient Near East, grumbling is the first step toward rebellion. It's, it's treason. Um, so what is the definition of blessing then? Blessing is God giving all things that are necessary for life and service. It's not primarily prosperity. 
uh, prosperity can actually be a judgment. Uh, when, what was the most prosperous period in the northern kingdom's history? Do you know? It was under Jeroboam II, who reigned for 40-plus years. It was maybe just slightly over 50 years. can't remember the detail. But they had the most power, politically, militarily, and economically, that they had had since the days of Solomon, but Jeroboam was a Baal worshiper. So why did God give prosperity to Jeroboam's Israel? To give them enough rope to hang themselves? Prosperity is not inherently... In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 6, you have the great commandment. Yes? We're, we're not going to finish Micah today. But that's okay. We'll come back and do this again in five weeks. But uh, the... Uh, um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. But there's another part of the chapter that's critically important. There are, there, there are two things that follow the great commandment. First is strategies to protect your love, your wholehearted love for God. So write the, the, these commandments I'm giving you today upon your hearts. Write them on the doorposts or write them on the gates. They took that literally, but anything that you, you see repeatedly, you quit seeing eventually, right? So, so they took it literally when they should have taken it figuratively. This must be written on your hearts. So that's the first thing, strategies to protect your wholehearted love for God. The second part of the chapter that, that follows the great commandment is the great danger that Israel faces in keeping the covenant with God. And the great danger is prosperity. When you live in houses you did not build, when you drink from cisterns you did not dig, when you, eat from, when you eat from vineyards you did not plant, then beware lest you forget the Lord your God. Are you with me here? So the very blessings that the covenant promises are the greatest danger Israel has. The greatest danger is not Baalism. The greatest danger is prosperity. Is that... Does that, does that say anything to you about our present? Yeah. We're, yeah. This, we, we may be in getting the rope, period, to hang ourselves with. Okay. I, I go back to the quote. It says there arose a generation who knew not God. Mm-hmm. That's always the uh, yeah. preceding yes. event. Yeah. That's right. And I look at yeah. We have a generation that knows God. Yeah, right. So. I know this is the Old Testament, but would it be appropriate to use the term God's grace throughout? Oh, yeah. There is, yes. Okay. Um, as, as we shall see in the judgment that's coming for Judah, it's not a total judgment, it's not a total destruction. He's going to leave a seed, a remnant, um, uh, for the future. So he. Brothers and sisters, God has sworn by himself in his covenant to Abraham. Then he must fulfill it, or he will prove that he has no right to be called God. This is Isaiah 41 to 48. So if he does not fulfill his promises to Abraham, he's not God. Okay. So I guess the big takeaway from this morning is simply for us to stop thinking about prosperity in the ways we've always thought about it and start thinking about suffering in ways that we've never dreamed of. Um, I was thinking this week, our, our grandsons were with us, and one of them is taken with everything military. He just can't get enough military. And I have a Medals of America catalog I gave him to take home, and he's looking for presents for his birthday in February. <laughs> he's so excited about the military, he just can't stand it. I got to thinking about basic training and what, what we went through. And it, my basic training was really fairly benign. It was the modern all-volunteer army, and everything was, we could, they couldn't cuss us. They couldn't do all kinds of things. <laughs> but we did front-leaning rest position. What a... What a delightful exercise that was. You're in a full push-up, right? And you just stand, stay there, and oh, man, it hurt. But one of the things they were doing in doing that was teaching us that we could take a whole lot more pain than we thought we could and do what's necessary. 
the drill sergeants never yelled in our faces. He never got in the face of any, any man in my company and yelled in his face. You had that experience, didn't you? <laughs> what army was he in? I was in the modern all-volunteer army. <laughs> but, but why do they do that? In part because you need to know you can take all kinds of physical and emotional and verbal abuse and stand it and get through it. Am I making sense to you? So how do you make a soldier? You have to toughen a person who's going to be a soldier. And we're soldiers, folks. Pots and pans. I always got back sink in KP, washing the pots and pans. I, I don't know. That, that it was, must have been written on my cap or something. But my point is that the only way to st- stiffen steel is to fill it with heat and then beat the tar out of it. Yes? The only way to stiffen a soldier is to give them hard tasks to accomplish and berate them if they don't so that they learn, I can keep on. I can do this. It's painful. It's frightening. It's horrific. But I can do this. I can face this and, and, and come through. Am I making sense to you? I have to learn not that kind of strength physically. I have to learn that kind of strength in faith. That God really is worth any cost he asks me to bear. He really is able to meet every need I have. The, the functional word there is need. My need is not necessarily prosperity. My need is not necessarily rest. It's hardship. So that I will know a God who is trustworthy in every kind of circumstance. And he tests each one of us in unique ways so that we can each become testimonies to the rest of the body of Christ to tell, yes, I went through this. Not what you're going through. I went through this. And here's how God was faithful. Am I making sense to you? So we've got to start looking at these things in different ways and start coming to understand a God who is sufficient for every need we have. Let's close with prayer. Father, you are not just sufficient. You abound in resources. One of the problems that we have is that we haven't been serving in ways that receive those resources. And when we pray, we ask for the wrong things. So, Father, I don't like teaching these things. I know what this means for me. I am more responsible now than anyone else in this room to take this message and carry it out. But, Father, we, what we must reach, the stage we must come to as your children, is to find you a perfect resource for every need that we have. So, so, Father, in fear and trembling, I ask, do a thorough work. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen.